0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. The Ecological Imperative, Shoftim. In the course of setting out the laws of war, the Torah adds a seemingly minor detail that became the basis of a much wider field of human responsibility and is of major consequence today. The passage concerns a military campaign that involves laying siege to a city. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, don't destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Don't cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. War is, the Torah implies, destructive. That's why Judaism's highest value is peace. Still though, there's a difference between necessary and needless destruction. Trees are a source of wood for siege works, but there are some trees, those who bear fruit, that are also a source of food, therefore don't destroy them. Don't needlessly deprive yourself and others of a productive resource. Don't engage in a scorched earth tactic in the course of war. The sages, though, saw in this command something more than a detail in the laws of war. They saw it as a binyan av, a specific example of a more general principle, and they called it the rule of baltashchit, the prohibition against needless destruction of any kind. Maimonides summarizes it by saying not only does this apply to trees, but also whoever breaks vessels or tears garments or destroys a building or blocks a wellspring of water or destructively wastes food transgresses tashchit. That is the halachic basis of an ethic of ecological responsibility. What determines whether a Biblical command is to be taken restrictively or expansively. Why did the sages take this seemingly minor law to build out a wide halachic field? What led the sages in the direction they took? The simplest answer, I think, lies in the word Torah itself. It means law, but it also means teaching, instruction, direction, guidance. The Torah is a law book like no other because it includes not only laws but also narratives genealogies, history, and song. Law, as the Torah conceives it, is embedded in a larger universe of meanings. Those meanings help us understand the context and purpose of any given law. So it is here. First and foremost is the fact that the earth isn't ours. It belongs to its creator, to God himself. That's the point of the opening of the Torah, in the beginning God created, he made it. Therefore, he's entitled to lay down the conditions within which we live in it as his guests. And the logic of this is immediately played out in the story of the very first humans. In Genesis 1, God commands humanity, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Subdue and rule are verbs of dominance. But in Genesis 2, the text uses two quite different verbs. God placed man in the garden, of to serve it and to guard it. And those belong to the language of responsibility. So, of tells us that humanity isn't just the m- master, but also the servant of nature. And Le is the term used in later biblical legislation to specify the responsibilities of someone who undertakes to guard something that isn't their own. How are we to understand this tension between the two chapters? Quite simply, Genesis tells us about creation and nature, the reality mapped out by science. It speaks about humanity as a biological species, Homo sapiens. What's distinctive about humans is precisely our godlike powers of dominating nature and exercising control over the forces that shape the physical world. This is a matter of fact, not value. And it's increased exponentially throughout the relatively short period of human civilization. As John F. Kennedy put it in his inaugural address, man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. Power is morally neutral It can be used to heal or wound, to build or destroy. But Genesis 2, by contrast, is about morality and responsibility. It tells us about the moral limits of power. Not everything we can do may we do. We have the power, but not the permission. We have the ability, but not the right. The earth isn't ours. It belongs to God who made it. Therefore, we are not the owners of nature, but its custodians. We're here to serve it and to care for it. Now, few moral principles have been forgotten more often and more disastrously. The record of human intervention in the natural order is marked by devastation on a massive scale. Within a thousand years, the first human inhabitants of America had travelled from the Arctic north to the southernmost tip of Patagonia, making their way through two continents and on the way destroying most of the large mammal species then extant. Among them, mammoths, mastodons, tapirs, camels, horses, lions, cheetahs and bears. When the first British colonists arrived in New Zealand in the early 19th century, bats were the only native land mammals they found. They discovered, however, traces of a large ostrich-like bird the Maoris called moa, eventually skeletons of A dozen species of this animal came to light, ranging from 3 to 10 feet high. The remains of some 28 other species have been found, among them flightless ducks, coots and geese, together with pelicans, swans, ravens and eagles. Animals that have not had to face human predators before are easy game, and the Maoris must have found them a relatively effortless source of food. And you can see the same pattern almost everywhere that human beings have set foot. They've been consistently more mindful of the ability to subdue and rule than of the responsibility to serve and guard. An ancient midrash sums this up in a way that deeply resonates with contemporary environmental awareness. When God made Adam, he showed him the panoply of creation and said to him, see all my works, how beautiful they are. All I have made, I have made for you. Take care, therefore, that you don't destroy my world. For if you do, there'll be no one left to mend what you have destroyed. Environmental responsibility seems to be one of the principles underlying the three great commands of periodic rest. Shabbat, Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and Yovel, the jubilee year. On Shabbat, all agricultural work is forbidden so that your ox and donkey may rest. What Shabbat does for humans and animals, the sabbatical and jubilee years do for the land. The land, too, is entitled to its periodic rest. The Torah warns that if the Israelites don't respect this, they'll suffer exile. Then shall the land make up for its sabbatical years throughout the time that it is desolate and you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and make up for its sabbatical years. That's from the Tochacha, the curses in um, the end of Vaikra. Behind this are two concerns. One is environmental. Maimonides points out land which is overexploited eventually erodes and loses its fertility. The Israelites were therefore commanded to conserve the soil by giving it periodic fallow years, not pursuing short-term gain at the cost of long-term desolation. And the second, no less significant, is theological. The land, God says, is mine. Ki gerim v'toshavim atemimadi. You are just strangers and temporary residents with me. We are guests on earth. Another set of commands is directed against over interference with nature. The Torah forbids crossbreeding livestock or planting a field with mixed seeds or is wearing a garment of mixed wool and linen. These rules are called chukim statutes, but Samson Raphael Hirsch in the 19th century, a bit like Ramban six centuries earlier, understood chukim to be laws that respect the integrity of nature. They represent the principle that the same regard you show to man, you must also demonstrate to every lower creature, to the earth which bears and sustains all, and to the world of plants and animals. They're a kind of social justice applied to the natural world. So, it was no accident The Jewish law interpreted the prohibition against cutting down fruit-bearing trees in the course of war as an instance of a more general prohibition against needless destruction, and more generally still against acts that deplete Earth's non-renewable resources or damage the ecosystem or lead to the extinction of species or lead to global warming and climate change. Vaclav Havel made a fundamental point in the art of the impossible. He wrote, I believe that we have little chance of averting an environmental catastrophe unless we recognize that we are not the masters of being, but only a part of being. Well, that's why a religious vision is so important, reminding us that we are not owners of our resources. They belong not to us, but to the eternal and to eternity. Hence, we may not needlessly destroy. And if that applies even in war, how much more so in times of peace? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So says Psalm 24. We are its guardians on behalf of its creator, for the sake of future generations. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting www.rabbisax.org. This year... We also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant A Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org slash ccfamilyedition.